0: Uh, Thank you, Roger. And I would like to thank the American Pain Society as well as Pain Week for organizing this session. Um, Secondly, I'd also like to thank all of you for coming to the last session on a Friday night in Vegas. So uh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very excited to be here uh, and share with you my expertise on the benefits of exercise for the treatment of musculoskeletal pain. You may have noticed I'm not using the Pain Week format for my slides. I had a bit of a snafu, but the content is the same uh, regardless of the format. This is my outline. I'm going to briefly talk about exercise as medicine. This is the foundation for my talk in using exercise to treat pain. Um, I'll talk about the different factors that we can utilize to individually tailor exercise prescription for our patients. I'll also talk about exercise for the management of chronic musculoskeletal pain, clearly, as the title of my talk. And I'll briefly talk about fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, and low back pain. And then I'll briefly talk about some of the barriers to exercise, Adherence. So Exercises Medicine, this is an American College of Sports Medicine initiative. Um, They actually have a great website if you're not familiar with it. It's exercisesmedicine.org. It's an excellent resource for both patients and clinicians. So again, I'd highly recommend it. Um, And a lot of these facts are actually from the website. Uh, We know that physical inactivity is a fourth leading cause of death globally. And if we're looking for the fountain of youth, Active 80-year-olds have a lower risk of death than inactive 60-year-olds. So that's pretty impressive. Um, The American College of Sports Recommendations are two and a half hours of brisk exercise a week. Um, About 56% of adults, regardless of their pain status, uh, do not exercise or meet these guidelines, and 40% of US primary care physicians do not meet these guidelines either. Uh, We know this is not just uh, a problem in the United States. According to the World Health Organization, 1.4 billion people um, have low levels of physical activity. It tends to be greater in women than men and and higher in high-income countries compared to low-income countries. So we definitely need strategies to increase this physical activity. One way to combat this is to view exercise as a vital sign. Um, This was promoted by Robert Salas, who was part of the Exercise as Medicine Advisory Board. Um, You can see he wrote two papers on this. Uh, One is the idea that exercise is the fifth vital sign. This was in 2011. However, we clearly know that pain is a fifth vital sign as of 2001, but you know, we'll move on. Um, but it's really the idea that along with the vital, vital signs that we as clinicians ask our patients, on average, how many days per week do you engage in moderate or greater physical activity, again, such as a brisk walk, and on average, how many minutes per, per session. And again, this is important to emphasize the benefits of exercise and being active. And it's also important to get um, kind of a foundation as to where your patients are at when you're thinking about initi- initiating exercise prescription. I also want to point out, though, that it's not only important to promote physical activity and meet these guidelines, but it's also important to decrease sedentary behavior. And these can actually be two different factors. Um, Again, you can meet the exercise guidelines, but still have a sedentary lifestyle. Most Americans spend about eight hours a day in sedentary behavior. Um, And I joke that as a physical therapist, I never sat down. And now that I'm in academics, um, I never stand up. Uh, I sit most of the day. So my mortality risk has gotten greater uh, by switching careers. And this is actually really nicely highlighted. I believe this was in 2015. Um, it's an excellent article looking at sedentary time and its association for risk a risk for disease incidence, mortality, and hospitalization in adults. And this is their conclusion that they found that in, uh, and again, this is a systematic review and meta-analysis that prolonged sedentary time was independently associated with deleterious health outcomes, such as mortality, regardless of physical activity. So it's at the idea that even if you hit the physical activity guidelines, but you spend the majority of every day in sedentary behavior, you're still gonna have health risks. Also, what I'm talking about today is clearly exercise and how we can increase physical activity through exercise and help manage pain. Um, we know that physical activity is linked with pain modulation. Um, Most of you may have heard of the HUNT pain study where it's actually looking at some prevention and how exercise is known to possibly prevent the development of chronic pain, which is extremely impressive. Um, This HUNT pain study is they looked at people who participated in physical activity and found that they were less likely to develop chronic musculoskeletal pain or musculoskeletal pain over 12 months compared with the people who had very little to no uh, physical activity. We also know that physical activity is related to pain inhibition and facilitation. We, in my lab, as well as others, have shown that people who are more physically active tend to have more efficient conditioned pain modulation and uh, less uh, temporal summation. Um, so again, we, we know that it can impact your endogenous pain modulation depending on your physical activity levels. The strongest benefits appear to be with moderate vigorous physical activity and with older adults. So what I'm gonna talk about now are some of the factors that we need to um, keep in mind when we're prescribing exercise and really getting at the idea of individually tailoring some of our exercise prescription. As you know, this is actually, this is um, a great figure from um, a recent article by Kathleen Suka and her lab, looking at a mechanism-based approach to physical therapist management of pain. And this is actually part of a special pain issue in the PTJ the Physical Therapy Journal that was published this year. So it's actually a wealth of of, of pain, uh, different knowledge um, in the in the PTJ journal. But within this article, Kathleen's group actually looked at different factors again that come into play, um, and they nicely summarize specific to exercise. Um, we know that there's different pain types: nociceptive, neuropathic. Uh, nociplastic, and within these pain types, they occur in context with different movement systems, as well as psychological influences. So again, I'm gonna talk about this in the next couple of slides. We also know that exercise works in a number of ways to decrease the pain. So there's a lot of potential mechanisms with how exercise decreases pain, and these may be different depending on the different types of pain that we're treating. For example, with nociceptive pain, pain that is typically localized to the tissue injury. There may be a component of peripheral sensitization. There's research showing that with nociceptive type pain, exercise can decrease nociceptive excitability, increase peripheral inhibition, and promote healing of that injured tissue. With nociplastic nociplastic type pain, which we typically think of as more chronic pain, patients with more diffuse symptoms, chronic widespread pain, there's research showing that exercise can activate descending inhibitory systems, as well as increases in endogenous opioids, as well as altered serotonin function. It can also reduce glial cell activation and increase anti-inflammatory cytokines. And finally, with neuropathic, which you can patients with neural uh, positive neural symptoms, tingly, tingling, burning, pain. Um, It can increase anti-inflammatory cytokines and expression of M2 macrophages. Uh, Kathleen has done a lot of work with this while decreasing inflammatory cytokine production as well as promote nerve healing and analgesia. Um, So I really wanna emphasize that exercise can work through a number of ways um, and it can be dependent on the different types of pain that we're treating. But as I mentioned, Within uh, these different types of pain, it occurs within the context of different motor systems or movement systems. And the interaction between pain and motor, is actually quite complex and highly variable. That's why we as clinicians, it's important to do a comprehensive evaluation of the motor system, because again, this can help guide how we individually tailor um, our exercise to our patients. So for example, with this first arrow, we know that pain can actually result in inhibition of motor activity. This patient would present with motor weakness, and then um, when we think about exercise prescription, you'd do something like strengthening. We also know that pain can result in motor facilitation, so you'd have an increase in muscle tension. And when we think about exercise prescription, we think about relaxation as well as stretching type exercises. With this next arrow is, is motor adaptations interfering. Um, so when people have acute pain, we develop these protective behaviors that are beneficial. But as the, as the tissue heals, if we still have these protective behaviors that extend beyond the normal tissue healing, from an exercise, exercise standpoint, we want to start doing neuromuscular education to really promote normal movement patterns. Now with the third one, this is are the motor, pat, or motor behaviors volitional. Um, And this is looking at someone who may have uh, fear avoidance type behaviors. Um, We could do graded exposure, we could do graded exercises, and this is really to promote volitional activity that does not interfere, um, again, with with activities. So promote um, volitional behaviors. Also, you can have problems with tissue loading Um, then we could use exercises to promote more efficient biomechanics. Um, This would be through like weight-bearing type exercises. Um, I know this was pretty brief and very fast, but like I said, the the interaction between pain and motor um, can be quite complex. Now also, as I mentioned, these different pain types occur with different movement systems, and we also know there's a lot of psychological influences that can impact pain, but we also know that exercise can improve uh, the psychological well-being. This is a nice study, and it was published last month in the Lancet Journal, and it looked at the associations between physical exercise and mental health in 1.2 million individuals in the USA. Um, and it was a cross-sectional study. And with this, what they did is they examined again the association between exercise and mental health burden. And as you can see here, all different types of exercise were found to be beneficial to boost mental health, um, including household activities Uh, uh, winter water sports, running, jogging, aerobic cycling. They did find that the greatest benefits occurred with more popular sports, more team sports, and they attributed that to some of the social aspects that occur with uh, socializing um, and participating in team sports. What I really like about this article is that it's one of the first and only articles where they're actually looking at exercise dose. Um, So within this article, they looked at what is the best exercise duration to get these mental health boosts, and also what is the frequency. And you can see there's a bit of a sweet spot right here when it comes to the duration of exercise, about 30 to 60 minutes is again that sweet spot uh, performed three to five days per week. And it was interesting to note that this occurred or it was consistent across all the exercise types. So again, this is pretty neat to have specific exercise dosing recommendations Um, And again, this is specific to boost uh, mental health. Now, it's not quite as clear the exercise dose to um, help promote pain relief in our chronic pain patients or musculoskeletal pain. What I'm gonna do now is I'm going to look at all the systematic reviews, or systematic reviews, not all of them, on the pain relieving benefits of exercise in, in patient populations. This first one, this is a Cochrane database of systematic reviews, and it's looking at physical activity and exercise for chronic pain in adults, and it's an overview of Cochrane reviews. Um, They did find that there was a small to moderate effect size for reducing pain severity and improving physical function, again, for patients in chronic pain or with chronic pain. And there's a lot more variable results for the psychological function, as well as the quality of life. Um, And I should point out, no matter what systematic review or what Cochrane review you're looking at, when it comes to exercise and pain, pretty much the majority of them will say that we have a low quality evidence. So we need to get better at at, at better evidence, okay? Uh, This could be to small sample size, um, underpowered studies, uh, limited follow-up, so it's difficult to know what are the long-term effects of regular exercise. And there's also problems with describing the type of exercise that is being done. Now I'm briefly gonna talk about fibromyalgia We think of this as more of a nosoplastic type pain condition. Um, And these first three bullet points, these are all Cochrane views showing the benefits of aerobic exercise in treating fibromyalgia. Strengthening is beneficial. Aquatics is beneficial. And they found that the land and aquatic exercises were equally effective in, in relieving pain in fibromyalgia. There was also an overview of results from systematic reviews. This was done by the European Hold on, I wrote this down. The the European League Against Rheumatism, ULAR, I I believe. Uh, And they looked at different recommendations. Again, they looked at results from 34 trials, um, and the exercise programs varied into duration from 2.5 to 24 weeks, so quite a variable there. But when they looked at the exercise parameters, they found that it was pretty consistent with aerobic exercise. The people recommended 20 minutes or more per day, and if they weren't able to do 20 minutes, then 10 minutes two times a day Uh, two to three times a week, and strengthening the typical parameters were greater than or equal to eight reps per exercise, two to three times a week. Um, And not surprising, I think to most clinicians here, is that patients may initially notice a deterioration or symptom exacerbation when they start exercising, but in general, exercise is viewed to be safe, especially with supervision. But I also wanna point out that not only are we looking at exercise purely from a pain management perspective, but it's also important, again, to individually tailor that exercise and to look at what else is going on. I just showed you a slide that's showing that the majority of different types of exercise, whether it's aerobic, whether it's strengthening, aquatics, they all have good benefits when it comes to pain relief when they're done regularly. Um, But I think it's also important to note, as I said, what else is going on. Um, We see a lot of fibromyalgia patients in the laboratory um, and we actually see quite a few who are in their 60s, 70, 80 years of age. And I think most of you know that as we age, we actually have a decrease in muscle loss. And this results in a strength declines in about 10% per decade. Um, and you may not notice it if you're 40, 50, 60 years old, but right here, when we get into the 70 years of age, this can really impact our quality of life. It can make the difference between staying and living in your home, being a community dwelling, individual versus going into assisted living or even a nursing home. Um, so again, I think it's really important to not only look at what are we going, try to treat from a pain perspective, um, but age is an important factor as well. This just is a, a little bit different view to see the sarcopenia or the age or age-related loss of muscle mass. And what this is, it's a cross-section of the mid-thigh. Um, on your left, this is a young individual who, who's 27 years of age. And on the right, this is an older individual. They're 79 years old. And if you would measure the circumference of that mid-thigh, it's the same size. So if you just look at it, um, it, again, it's the same size. But if you actually do a scan of that, um, it's pretty apparent that there's a lot more muscle in the younger individual. And you can see that decrease in muscle. So here's the circumference. I don't know if you can see that. That's, the, that's the, the circumference of the legs. Um, but there's a lot less muscle in the aging person. And even the quality of the muscle, um, again, is a lot less. You can see a lot more fatty deposits um, in that older individual. So again, I really want to emphasize that a lot of different exercises are beneficial, um, but it's important to look at what else is going on. And age would be an important factor in that. Now with osteoarthritis, um, this tends to be more nociplastic and or nociceptive. Um, There's also a lot of research, a lot of Cochrane reviews, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, just like with fibromyalgia, showing that a lot of different types of exercise are beneficial in in managing this or or promoting pain relief. With lower extremity osteoarthritis, um, that's what's most studied, both the knee and the hip. Um, Those are the conditions that are most studied in the literature. Um, Knee, land-based exercises. This is a Cochrane view. Um, And the next one, the Jule study right here in 2014. This is one of the few systematic reviews and meta-analysis where they actually come up with exercise dosing recommendations. And they recommend supervised aerobic exercise, as well as quadricep muscle strengthening three times a week Um, So again, this is interesting because they promote both aerobic as well as strengthening exercises to get the best benefits from a pain management standpoint. Also, though, an Ottawa panel just looked at walking for different types of chronic pain conditions, and they found that walking was beneficial. So I think this is important when we think about intensity, especially if someone is coming to you and you ask them, you know, how much are they exercising? Are they meeting the American College of, American College of Sports Medicine recommendations? If they're not, or, or if they have very low levels of physical activity, walking um, would be an excellent um, exercise to start off with. Also, aquatic or hip, um, excuse me, whoops, I lost my place. Strengthening with weight-bearing, strengthening without weight-bearing, as well as aerobic exercise. All three exercise types have been proven to be effective. In the short term, the most effective was straight bearing, strengthening without weight-bearing. Um, so again, that's something to keep in mind from a short-term uh, pain relief aspect from hip. Uh, We know that a broad range of therapeutic exercise is beneficial. Again, I think that was another Cochrane review. Um, Aquatic exercises have also been found to be effective for both knee and hip OA. Um, This last one in the 2015, this again was another Cochrane review. Again, there's a lot of literature showing the benefits of exercise. They actually compared high-intensity versus low intensity exercise for osteoarthritis. When they mean high intensity, this would be an increase in overall training time, such as the frequency, duration, or the number of exercise sessions, looking at work, so how much are they doing, the strengthening, the number of reps, or how much effort they're, they're doing with these exercises. And they compared this, again, between the low and high intensity. And they found that there was insufficient evidence um, to look if, if low intensity or high intensity, if one was better than another. Um, And so what we don't know, what is the minimal intensity that is needed to get these clinical benefits and what is the highest intensity um, that people can tolerate. Um, So again, we don't know as much about that exercise dose um, that I showed you with the mental health uh, study looking at those associations. This is actually hard to read now that I'm standing here. Um, but this, this is also ULAR recommendations. These were recently published looking at um, the different types of exercise, again, for osteoarthritis pain. It's just a little bit of a different format, again, showing that a broad range of different types of exercise are beneficial for osteoarthritis. Um, and you can see they looked at... Um, aerobic exercise, strengthening and resistance. They looked at Tai Chi, yoga, qui whole body vibration, um, general exercises up here at the top. So a broad range of exercises were looked at. Um, they looked at the quality of evidence and um, a lot of them had positive benefits and I'd say the majority of them. So again, the type of exercise may not be as important as just getting your patients um, doing some type of exercise from a pain management perspective. Also, as I pointed out, the majority of uh, adults are physically inactive. So one question may be, well, what about people who are not as active? Um, How do they respond to exercise? Um, And this is a study that was recently published, um, I believe just this year. And they looked at the impact of physical activity activity levels on the short and long-term pain relief from supervised exercise therapy and education. And this was done in 12,796 Danish patients with knee OA. Uh, not surprisingly, the, the patients that were physically inactive, they tended to have worse baseline pain compared to those with low to very high physical activity levels. Um, and it's good to look at the long-term effects of exercise, and they found that the long-term pain relief really from the supervised exercise and education sessions were similar regardless of that initial physical activity levels. So again, whether your patients have very low physical activity levels or quite high, they're all going to get benefits, long-term benefits um, from regular exercise training. Now with low back pain, uh, this is a little bit more complex in the sense that we can have patients who have plastic type pain, pain, uh, nociceptive, as well as neuropathic potentially. Um, also within low back pain, even the, the context of the motor system, it can be quite variable. We can have patients with low back pain where they have an increase in um, back extensor muscle activity. You can also have patients who have a decrease in uh, muscle extensor activity. So um, again, it's important to look at what's going on from a motor perspective to potentially um, individually tailor those exercises. Um, and so what I think is interesting, even... Within the same condition, you can see a lot of variability um, with that impact of the movement systems. Uh, but just like with all the other conditions with the fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis, we know that there's a lot of evidence showing the benefits of exercise. The strongest evidence tends to be for chronic low back pain versus acute low back pain. Um, there's a lot of research showing both aerobic and resistant exercises improves pain in chronic non-spec- non-specific low back pain, uh, neither one was superior in this particular study. Um, there's also strengthening and stabilization exercises have been shown to be beneficial for chronic non-specific low back pain. Um, and again, walking. This was an interesting review right here where they looked at walking versus other types of exercises, and they found that there were similar benefits with walking, um, in pain, disability, quality of life, and fear avoidance behaviors. So again, um, some patients, when we say, let's go exercise, they think we, you know they're gonna go in a gym and they're gonna be lifting heavy weights and, uh, and, and that type of thing. And, and for some patients, they may really like that, um, but others, you can start again with a walking program and, and gradually build um, to more uh, aggressive type exercises. Also, um, I think it's important to point out too that exercise can also the re- reduce the risk of low back pain. Um, This is a meta-analysis showing that a combination of strengthening with either stretching or aerobic exercises can prevent low back pain and the general population. So again, it's really getting at that idea that exercise can potentially be preventive as well. So I just did a really quick review of systematic reviews, and, and really there's a lot of literature showing, again, the majority of types of exercise Um, are beneficial for the treatment of a variety of musculoskeletal pain. But some of you may be thinking, but my patients say pain pain, or, or exercise makes their pain worse. So what's going on here? So I think it's really important to distinguish The the evidence looking at regular exercise, again, exercise um, that is routine over six weeks and and distinguish it between, or with what happens following a single exercise session. Um, So again, what I showed you previously is exercise training and now I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and try to help explain what is going on when people talk about that symptom exacerbation. This was a really nice meta-analysis review of the hypologesic effects um, with Kelly Nagle and, and Roger Fillingham here and Joe Raleigh. And they looked at um, isometric, dynamic, and aerobic exercise. And again, we're looking at what happens following a single exercise session. In um, healthy adults, not surprising, um, all three types of exercise reduce experimental pain with some pretty good effect sizes. And when we looked at chronic pain populations or when they looked at chronic pain populations, the effect sizes were highly variable. Um, so some people had an increase, some people had a decrease, and it wasn't, um, they weren't able to determine the optimal dose. Again, so this is kind of help explaining what happens when people first start exercising and what can we do about it. Uh, first, just to give a little bit of background with aerobic exercise and, and young healthy individuals, there is an intensity duration interaction uh, for young healthy adults to get um, a pain relief following a single exercise session, it's usually typically a high intensity, longer duration type exercise stimulus. This was done by Marty Hoffman, where he had people exercise on a treadmill at different intensities and duration. And the only one that had that decrease in pain was the longer duration of 30 minutes for a higher intensity. So again, there's this interaction between intensity duration and young, healthy adults, which is why we call it the runner's high. Um, and not the walkers high. But I think it's really important when we read this literature that how our patients are going to respond uh, likely much different uh, than, again, a young, healthy adult. So the dose will be less. I just talked to you about how even walking can be beneficial for our pain patients. Um, so, so I think that's very important when we're looking at the literature. We took a slightly different approach in the lab. We were interested in isometric contractions. So that's where you contract your muscle, but you're not moving. So hopefully all of us here, as we're maintaining good posture, um, we're doing isometric contractions. It's the most common form of muscle contractions. It's very easy to prescribe and individualize. You can take a force force transducer and measure someone's maximal strength and the intensity would be a percentage of that maximal strength. So again, uh, it's very easy to individualize that. And the majority of our patients can do some type of isometric contraction, even those with limited mobility. Um, and unlike aerobic exercise, we wanted to know what is the role of intensity and duration for pain relief um, with these isometric contractions. So we looked at this in young, healthy adults originally. I'll go through this quickly. We had people coming into laboratory and this, um, their arm is, is in a rigid orthosis, and this is a force transducer We're measuring muscle activity. And we're also measuring their pain response before and after these isometric contractions by placing a weighted plastic edge on their finger for two minutes. Uh, We ask them when they first feel pain, their pain threshold, and then uh, every 20 seconds, we ask them to rate their pain from zero to 10. And again, we're interested in the intensity and duration of these isometric contractions. So we had them come in for four separate sessions. One, they did three maximal voluntary contractions. Um, So they were quick contractions for about Uh, two to three seconds. We had them do this three times. So high intensity, short duration. We had them do low intensity contractions for two minutes, low intensity contractions, which again is 25% of their MVC until they could not hold it any longer until they met task failure. And then a higher intensity contraction um, again until task failure. So these are the results. Um, I'll kind of talk you through it a little bit. you can do a high-intensity contraction for just 10 seconds in duration, and you'll get an increase in pain threshold and a significant decrease in the pain ratings during that two-minute test. So the next time you, you hitch your knee, just contract it really hard for about 10 seconds, you know, or you touch a hot stove and just contract really hard, because uh, you can get these pain-relieving benefits, which I find quite surprising. When we did the low-intensity contraction for a short duration, we didn't see any change in their pain threshold or the pain ratings. But when we held that low intensity contraction for a much longer duration until task failure, this is where we saw that increase in pain threshold and the decrease in pain ratings. We also saw a decrease in pain ratings with that 80% isometric contraction held until task failure. And the greatest decrease in pain ratings actually occurred with this low intensity contraction held until task failure. So in young healthy adults, the isometric contraction, it was task specific. Both low intensity and high intensity isometric contractions decrease pain, but the low intensity contractions must be held for a longer duration. I also wanna point out that fatigue was not required because when they did the three MVCs, they were able to, to maintain their exercise induced force. Their force did not decline during those three MVCs. Also, there's systematic, systemic effects. We're gonna talk about this later, and it's really important from a clinical standpoint because you can do, I'm trying to think which side we did it on. You can do an isometric contraction and measure a decrease in pain on a distal body part. Again, so that, that pain relief is not localized to the exercising muscle. We also did this in older healthy adults. Um, we're definitely interested in, in, in the role of age and, the, and how exercise decreases pain. Uh, we did a very similar protocol. And what was interesting, this was looking at their pain threshold. And this is looking at the average pain ratings pre and post those exercise stimulus. And we found that all the exercises had a similar increase in pain threshold and a decrease in pain ratings. Because if you remember, it was task specific in young adults. The greatest decrease was with the low intensity contraction held for a longer duration, but we did not see the task specificity in the older adults. So this would suggest that the exercise dose is not as important as we age, that you're gonna get similar benefits whether you do a low intensity contraction for a short duration or for a longer duration. Now, of course, we also did this. This is a smaller study that we did in people with fibromyalgia. Again, we did the very same protocol. We looked at different intensities and contractions of isometric contractions, and then we also measured their pain response in the opposite limb. Now, we weren't sure what we would find. We actually thought maybe we'd see an increase in pain, Um, but what you can see here is we actually don't see much. This is uh, the three MVCs. This is a low intensity contraction held for two minutes. And this is a low intensity contraction held for a longer duration. And we don't see any change in pain thresholds for any of these or changes in pain ratings. But well, we actually found this surprising because um, I definitely remember when people would say, this just doesn't feel the same. I don't even feel like um, there's any type of weight on my finger. Whereas other people would say, wow, this is a lot more painful. So we had previously set criteria For putting people into um, an either an increase or decrease pain group with this protocol and what we found is that out of the 15 excuse me five had a pain increase so their pain thresholds went down or no excuse me yeah five had a pain increase so their pain thresholds went down their pain reports went up Uh, five had a decrease in pain so an increase in pain thresholds decrease in pain ratings and five had no change in pain so we saw a lot of variability, just like uh, Noggle had shown previously with that meta-analysis review. Um, and what was interesting is that we found that age was a predictor of that exercise-induced hypoalgesia, that the younger people with fibromyalgia were more likely to get pain relief with these uh, different types of isometric contractions. So some of you may be thinking, um, she's presenting this data, some people have an increase in pain, some people have a decrease in pain. It looks like some people with fibromyalgia should not exercise because they have that increase in pain. And and I'm not saying that at all um, because what happens initially with the exercise program does not necessarily predict what happens with routine or long-term exercise. This is actually really nicely shown by Anderson. This, uh, This group, they looked at exercise in people with chronic neck pain, so upper trapezius myalgia, and what was interesting is they had these people go into two different groups. Both groups did high-intensity exercise three times a week for 10 weeks, but one group did general fitness, so they did cycling of the lower extremities, and the other group did strengthening exercises specific to the neck region. This right here is the general fitness group, Um, And you can see during the first five weeks and the second five weeks, they had a decrease in pain right after they did the lower extremity cycling. So this is really nicely showing those systemic effects. Again, they have upper trapezius myalgia, they did lower extremity cycling, and they get this nice systemic or a decrease in pain at a distal body part. So for those of you where your patients, um, they're very sensitive, um, they may not be able to start exercising initially, we talked about low intensity exercise, such as walking, but you can also start exercising a body part that's not painful originally. I mean, so that's, that's another way um, to do that because of, again, of those system, systemic effects. Now, interesting with the strengthening group, during the first five weeks, they had an initial increase in pain right after they did the strengthening exercises. This was no longer significant, so that initial increase in pain disappeared during the second five weeks of exercise training. What I find most interesting is this is looking at that worst pain during the 10-week training period. The group, the strengthening group, over 10 weeks, they had an 80% decrease in their worst pain. The general fitness group, they had no change in their worst pain. So, so that's surprising. The group that had that immediately, immediate decrease in pain, their worst pain never changed over that 10 weeks. So this is showing that people, when you have pain exacerbation, when you first start exercise, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not gonna get great pain relief as you continue that exercise program. So what do we do? What do we do when we have this pain exacerbation, especially when people first start exercising? Well, this is interesting. Uh, this was published, I believe, in 2017. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at whether exercise should be painful and the management of chronic musculoskeletal pain. And I graduated from physical therapy school 20 years ago. And I remember when I first started seeing patients, I would say, if it hurts, stop. I mean, That was my motto, and that's what, that's what we all said. That's what I learned in PT school, and that's what I told all my patients, because if it hurts, something must be wrong. Um, but that's really changed. That mentality has changed a lot. Um, in the last 20 years, um, as highlighted by this review, because we know that when people have very low levels of physical activity, when you first start exercising, it's going to be uncomfortable. So how can we make that better? Um, But back to this article, they did look at different um, effects of exercise where pain was allowed or encouraged, and they compared this with non-painful exercises, specifically in chronic musculoskeletal pain, and these were all randomized controlled trials. They did find that painful exercise offered a small but significant benefit over pain-free exercises in the short term, which I find a little bit surprising. Um, And they found that there's no clear superiority of painful exercise or non-painful exercise um, over the medium or long term. We were interested in this, um, you know, pain during exercise. So um, what we did was we had people with fibromyalgia coming into laboratory, and we have a biodex. So this is a very well-controlled research environment. Um, and we had people do dynamic, where this is when you're moving your arm as you're contracting your muscle, like think about traditional weight layer lifting. And we compared this to isometric contractions, again, where you're contracting your muscle, but you're not moving. Um, when you think about well, what, what, uh, what type of exercise would that be? It'd be like yoga type exercises where you're maintaining postures, if you're thinking from a clinical standpoint. And what we did, um, we also had healthy controls. So I should point that out. Um, we have about 35 in each group this is an ongoing study so about 70 uh, subjects total and our healthy controls were matched for age sex physical activity and bmi um, so it's it's the recruitment process is by far the hardest part um, of this study but what we did was we asked them about their arm pain while they're doing the dynamic and isometric contractions and these are two separate exercise sessions that were matched for intensity They did a 20% of their maximal voluntary contraction, so it's a low-intensity contraction. Uh, They did this for 10 minutes, and we also matched them for duty cycles. So they did two-second contraction followed by a one-second wrench. So the dynamic and isometric contractions had the exact same parameters, just one, you're moving, and the other one, isometric, you're not moving. The fibromyalgia, this is shown in purple. Um, and you can see for both the dynamic and isometric contractions, given the exact same exercise, people with fibromyalgia, they're gonna they're going have a harder time tolerating that. So they're, going to, they, they're experiencing more pain with the exercise than with our healthy controls. Also what's interesting is the dynamic contractions, they reported significant more pain both the fibromyalgia individuals as well as the healthy controls reported that the dynamic contractions were more painful than the isometric contractions. So again, when we're thinking about initiating exercise, perhaps for those older adults that we know that strength training is very important, um, it might be beneficial to first start with isometric contractions, which are significantly less painful than say the dynamic contractions. So that's what we're kind of taking away um, from a clinical standpoint. We're also interested in where's the pain occurring and what happens with recovery. Um, I'm sure a lot of you, there's anecdotal evidence. Um, Our patients will say, you know, I exercise and I'm just wiped out for days or I have pain several days later. Um, And so we we were definitely interested in this um, and we had patients report their arm pain as well as their whole body pain. So we're trying to get at that local pain response with exercise as well as what is going on more systemically with that whole body pain. Um, And then when we ask them about their arm, the exercising arm, this is before exercise, immediately after, day one and day three during recovery. And not surprising, I showed you previously that um, both of these dynamic and isometric contractions, they report an increase in pain. um, But what's interesting, day one and day three, that exercising arm is no longer painful for the healthy controls. But the people with fibromyalgia, you can see, um, they still have pain, Um, two to three out of, two to three out of 10, which is two to three out of 10, which is significantly higher than their baseline pain, even day one and day three. Um, So people are just gonna have a harder time with recovering, specifically in that exercising muscle. Now, as I mentioned, we also asked about their whole body pain. Um, And you can see the healthy controls, they don't really report any whole body um, throughout any of these um, uh, isometric or dynamic contractions. The people with fibromyalgia, we see a slight increase Um, but this was not statistically significant. It may become so as we collect more data, Um, but we really didn't see much changes in their whole body pain, Um, but that pain exacerbation or the problems with recovery really appear to be apparent um, in that exercising muscle. So how to address this pain exacerbation? Um, We definitely wanna talk about education. Um, really address those expectations and say you may have a slight increase in pain, especially if you're not physically active. Um, Talk about hurt does not equal harm. So it's the idea that you're safe but sore. Um, And I also talk about the evidence. Um, You know, we have a lot of Cochrane reviews, and if you read just the abstracts or those brief summaries, um, they're pretty, the conclusions are pretty strong. Exercise is beneficial, all types is beneficial, aquatic, strengthening, uh, resistance exercises, these are beneficial. I will give the summaries to my patients and say, I want you to read this, and then come back to me, and then we'll talk, or we'll see how you're doing with the different types of exercise. Or what is your preference for exercise? Also, dosing and progression. Um, Again, if if your patients aren't moving, start with low intensity. Start with walking programs. There's a lot of nice research showing, bless showing that walking is beneficial. If you're interested in strength training, start thinking about isometric um, with a progression to dynamic. As I mentioned, exercise is systemic. Uh, You can start with a non-painful body region. And as I mentioned before, almost all types of exercise have have been shown to be beneficial. Um, Ask your patient what they like to do. Also with adject pain management, um, again, as a physical therapist, we do a lot of non-pharmacological pain management. Um, you can talk about icing the area, especially if they're getting localized muscle pain. Um, talk about icing before and after exercise or over those three days of recovery. Um, some people really like heat. Um, if they have some tension or if they just want to stretch it out, they feel tight. Um, talk about stretching in a warm shower. Um, also, there's some nice research with the TENS unit. Uh, it's a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator. Um, and Kathleen Stuka, along with her lab, has shown that um, TENS decreases movement evoked pain, so pain during exercise in people with fibromyalgia. So again, there's a lot that we can use from our toolbox um, to help kind of dampen some of that pain exacerbation. All right, so I'm going to quickly end with exercise adherence. Um, As all of us know, exercise is frequently discontinued despite pain relief, Um, We call these repeat offenders. So in physical therapy, we discharge people from physical therapy um, and they're not being supervised and they stop doing the exercises. And also their pain is better. You know, they they don't feel pain and and, and they're doing better. So they stop the exercises, the pain comes back and they come back to physical therapy. So again, some of this is really getting at um, education and talking about how exercise can help prevent that recurrence of that symptom exacerbation. Poor treatment adherence, not surprising, it's also related to pain during exercise. It can be related to low levels of physical activity, uh, low self-efficacy, depression, anxiety, poor social support, um, which sometimes when I think about exercise, I try to discharge people into um, social or group types of exercise programs from physical therapy that can help um, get some of that social support as well. Um, and also, there's significant barriers. I mean, we know there's insurance barriers um, just to get into physical therapy, to get into other clinicians, uh, childcare, work, transportation. Um, there, there can be a lot of factors involved with why we're not exercising or people are not being physically active. So some interventions to improve adherence. Um, individualize it. So we talked about how to individualize uh, exercise. We can think about the the exercise or the pain types. We can talk about what's going on with the motor system. Um, We can talk about the benefits from a psychological aspect. Um, Again, I already talked about their exercise preference. Um, Integrate into the activities of daily living. Um, I know with my patients, I'd say, what do you do every day that you'd never not do? Um, Like brush your teeth. All right, when you're brushing your teeth, I want you to do 10 squats, Um, You know that type of thing. So um, try to hook it into something that they do, again, every day. Uh, Supervision. So again, there's a lot of research showing that supervision is beneficial. Um, You know, it's looking at that accountability. If someone is there saying exercise, you're gonna exercise versus hitting your alarm uh, routinely in the morning, which is why I did not exercise this morning. Um, Booster sessions. Um, I think this actually gets at with how we um, do exercise prescription and how our system is set up. As I mentioned, people stop exercising when they stop physical therapy. Um, I think it's important to think about how how we're structured as healthcare professionals. Um, ideally, I would have my patients come back every month or two. Um, and then we talk about, do you have problems with exercise? And also progress their exercises. The idea that you're gonna do the exact same exercise for one, two, three years later, um, I, I find that would be incredibly boring. Um, so again, how, how can we make it exciting again? Also increased motivation. Um, again, this is from the articles, um, post self reminders. Um, do an exercise log talk about treatment contracts, um, goal setting. So why do you want to exercise? What do you hope to achieve? Um, And also behavioral graded exercise, Um, gradually increase that exercise intensity, and again, integrate into daily activities. Finally, I do want to end um, with the use of pedometers um, anybody here? You know, with the Fitbits, um, the Garmins. You know, we all we all have our uh, frequently used, uh, hopefully frequently used pedometers. Um, and this is this is a nice review. Um, it's a systematic review looking at pedometers um, as an intervention for musculoskeletal diseases. And they did show that there was strong evidence for the effectiveness of pedometers and in walking interventions to increase physical activity levels. So, I think that's great because I'm looking at this thinking I need to still get more steps in, right? Um, but I also think, you know, as healthcare professionals, you don't, a lot of our patients don't have $100 to spend on a Fitbit. Um, I know at the last physical therapy meeting I was at, one of the companies, they had these, um, I hate to say cheap, but they're like 3 to $5, and they had the company logo printed on them. And it's a whole idea that you could print your company, your hospital, whatever, and you could give them to your patients as a marketing tool. And then you could say, what I want you to do is, I just want you to look at how much you're moving. Do this for the first week. We're not going to talk about how to increase it, what you're doing. Just get a baseline with how much you're moving, and then maybe increase it 10% 20% um, over the next couple of weeks. So again, I think this is a really nice intervention to help get at some of that adherence. Um, and as I mentioned before, there's actually quite a bit of research showing the benefits of walking for chronic musculoskeletal pain, for low back pain, as well as knee OA. So again, I think that, that's one aspect that you can incorporate into your practice all right good i'm right on time so in summary um i think it's important to treat musculoskeletal pain um it's, it, i hope you understand that you not only want to increase physical activity but you also want to decrease sedentary behavior um, as i showed you when you look at the systematic reviews almost all forms of physical activity had been shown to be beneficial Um, And that's why we wanna start thinking about individually tailoring that, what is occurring with the motor systems, what else is occurring from a comorbidity when you think about the psychological influences, potentially aging with how to um, optimize their exercise prescription. Also, as all of us know, um, it's important to educate our patients and say you may have an initial increase in pain when initiating exercise. So it's really important to talk about education and what other supplements can we do to help address that. Um, and there's several strategies that we can try to do to promote engagement in regular physical activity. So um, thank you um, again i 'm very pleased. We should all give ourselves a pat on the back for being here on a Friday night, um, and i 'd like to thank uh, my uh, lab people as well as uh, my funding. So thank you very much. And if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer any of them. I don't know if people want to stay and we answer them or, I, I mean, feel free to go. Like I said, I know it's Friday night, but, yeah, we can, yeah. Oh, sure. So back to the runner's high, or the that we all get in the movement. Sure. Sure. Right, so um, uh, Kelly Colton has written some reviews on that with intensity duration. And I, again, I really want to emphasize that's young, healthy adults, um, so that runner's high. And so um, I don't know the MET conversion offhand, um, but again, I know in that article, um, Kelly Colton has written quite a bit about intensity duration, and she would have that, that MET conversion. So I apologize, I don't know the, the conversion right off Right. So, so the mechanisms. Sure. Um, it's hard to say. I think there's a lot of mechanisms. You know, I tried to briefly highlight on that one slide. Um, sure. It could potentially be endogenous opioids. Um, it could be activation of descending inhibitory pathways. We've done a lot of research looking at conditioned pain modulation, um, and we found a link between um, physical activity and, and conditioned pain modulation. Again, people who are more active have more efficient CPM. We've also sh- There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and I also want to say, isometrics, again, we're not going to have our patients just sit here and contract your muscle, how boring. Um, but you think about um, uh, uh, yoga, tai chi. Um, I, I know there's a study that just came out uh, with fibromyalgia, and it was a systematic review, so I didn't include it, but it was a randomized controlled trial showing that um, they concluded that tai chi was better than aerobic exercise for the management of fibromyalgia, which, honestly, I was, I was surprised by that. Um, so I think when we talk about the small to moderate effects with exercise and pain, and then we talk about the low quality of evidence, I actually think the exercise dosing and the types of exercise that are better than another, I think that's going to change as we tailor the exercise prescription and we just get higher quality of evidence. But the bottom line is, get people moving, and they're going to feel better. Yeah, you know, I don't know, um, especially from a pain standpoint. I haven't seen specific, like, RCTs looking at reciprocal inhibition and and whatnot. Um, Again, but if if it's part of the motor system and you want to address that, um, absolutely, I think that would be part of that individually tailoring. Um, And and I will point out, um, if people, you know, the research into the interaction between pain and motor, it's huge. It's huge. And, and no one quite knows what's going on. Um, I have some colleagues at Marquette, as well as um, throughout the country, throughout the world, where we just don't know what's going on there. And I think, again, you can have the same uh, condition or diagnosis, and some people have pain facilitation or uh, motor facilitation, some people have motor inhibition, um, and I think we're just starting to figure that out. So unfortunately, I can't answer that well. Okay.